Would you open the Word of God with me to the epistle of James, James chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 26 and 27 again this morning, James 1, 26 and 27. As you're finding that place in the Word of God, we need to recall what James has been saying as we come to the end of the initial chapter in the letter. You might remember from our studies last week that James is defining for us what it truly means to be religious. In fact, in this passage, this is the only place in the New Testament where the word religious appears. And James is talking about what true religion consists of. Uh, James is speaking with his characteristic bluntness of the kind of religion that is pleasing and acceptable to God. And you might also remember that James is very concerned that we become doers of the Word of God and not simply those who hear the Word or who merely hear it or who give only a casual assent to it. The overall message of James is clear enough that we must put into practice what we believe, that our faith in Jesus Christ must be brought to a place where it is visible through the fruit of righteousness. In other words, the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, changes us. It transforms us. The Spirit of God who inhabits us is transforming us into the likeness of Jesus, and He's doing this progressively over the entire course of our lives. And this is what James means when later, as we will see, he says in chapter 2, verse 17, that faith by itself if it has no works, is dead. The issue is authentic Christianity. And James is helping us distinguish between the false kind of Christianity or false religion that there might be in the world or in the church and true religion. He speaks to the person who claims to be religious. And let's listen to what he says now in James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this is the blessed word of the Lord. May he now bless it to our hearing. Again, the issue on the table immediately in chapter 1, verse 26, is the person or the persons who think, who assume that they are religious. Most of us in the world say we are religious. But who is truly religious in the eyes of God? Who is truly religious in the way the Bible defines the word religion? James is concerned about members of the churches to whom he wrote in the first century who were obviously claiming they are religious, that is, they are followers of Jesus, but maybe they're not. Because anyone can make that claim, right? Well, how do you know? How do you know if a person's religion is, is the real thing, that it is pure and undefiled as opposed to worthless? How do you know? So James James supplies some tests for us, three tests that we all need to apply to our claim to be religious to find out whether or not we really are in the eyes of God. 
Now, if this is a bit offensive to you, let us remember that Jesus is the one who did this first. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7. By the way, Jesus is the older brother of James. And in Matthew 7, the older brother of James says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So James is saying nothing more than his brother Jesus had said, that not all religions are valid. Only Christianity is true. Only Christianity leads to eternal life. But there's also this very real danger that within the household of Christianity, it is possible for professing members of the church to believe defective versions of Christianity. And James is concerned about that. And so he begins laying out some tests. Now, these are not all the tests that could be applied, but they are three tests that James is concerned about. How do you know whether your faith is real or not. And so he offers test number one, which is what we're going to talk about today. Test number one is the test of a bridled tongue. And then in later sermons, we're going to see test number two is the test of a heart full of compassion. This is when James says, visiting orphans and widows in their distress. And then the third test that we'll get to a bit later is the test of a pure life. He says to keep oneself unstained from the world, a life in opposition to the world. But today, the test is that of a restrained or controlled tongue. Whoever claims to be a follower of Jesus, according to James, must demonstrate control over their speech. Whoever truly belongs to Christ will bridle his own tongue. Well, let's look at this test. Because having introduced it in verse 26, James takes an entire chapter almost to explain and to elaborate what he means. So will you find with me now chapter 3, verse 2? And as you're finding that, let me warn you that no other New Testament author speaks as frequently of the tongue as does James. And no author in the New Testament speaks as bluntly of the tongue as does James. And there's no more powerful word in the book of James than what he says here. So be warned, be warned. And let's read together as James further elaborates on this issue of the controlled tongue as the evidence that we belong to Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 2, he says... We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, meaning he's a mature man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small member, that is a member of the body, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salty pond yield fresh water. Now, it's very obvious, isn't it, that this is a big deal to James. What we might normally consider as non-essential or at least inconsequential turns out to be something of primary concern, the organ of speech. It depends on what studies you read, but modern studies are in agreement, basically, that the average human adult speaks 16,000 words a day. Now, some more than others. And we speak a lot, clearly. If if we were to count, it would be in the tens of thousands, perhaps. 16,000. We love to talk, and that's what we do. But do we ever stop? And James is asking us to do this. Do Do we ever stop and think about the significance, the spiritual significance of the words we use and how we use them, and even how many we use? Have you ever stopped and made the connection between your words and your theology? Between your tongue and your religion? And you can see that James is is exposing a critical connection between our speech and our religion. Our tongues are very, very important. Let me show you in a very brief fashion how this comes about, that the tongue, that the organ of speech is so important, so important that James would use this kind of dramatic and strong language. We have to do what we often do. We go back to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis. And we think about how the world and how the universe came into existence, and we know, we know that it all came into existence by speaking, that God spoke. The creation narrative of Genesis 6, the Word of God describes creation as occurring on six days. And at every point along the way, in those six days, it is said that God spoke. He spoke. First, He spoke, and there was light. And then He spoke again, and there was an expanse, a separation between the waters below and the waters above. And then He spoke again, and dry land appeared. And the same rhythm continued, God speaking, and then all the stars appearing, and the planets. And then God speaking again, and all the living organisms, and the animals, and man, all created by the spoken Word of God. Our God is a God who speaks. He is not silent. His words reveal His truth. His words are powerful to carry out His will. I know you're at chapter 3, verse 2, 
But look at chapter 1, verse 18 again. James has already reminded us of the power of the word to bring life out of nothing. He says that we were all born again. We were brought forth, he says in chapter 1, verse 18, by the word of truth in the same way that God spoke into the nothingness and created everything that exists right now. He spoke into the deadness of your soul and brought you to life as a Christian. You owe your redemption, you owe your regeneration, you owe your salvation to the God who spoke you into new life. Oh, the power of the gospel. Words are a vehicle of revelation. Words are instruments of divine power. Well, there in the garden, God did create Adam and Eve, but he made them in his image and likeness. He placed on, in those human creatures a dignity that is greater than anything else the Lord has made. The life of no other creature, the life of no other organism is is endowed with the sanctity that you find in a human life. For only human beings are the divine image bearers. And only humans have the ability to speak patterned after their creator. Oh, it's true that other living things can communicate in some ways, but only man. Only man is endowed with the ability to think rationally and to formulate words and to express himself through the vehicle of speech. And this ability to speak patterned after the creator is a gift from God. It is a gift to be able to speak, a sacred gift. Well, originally, the Lord gave us this gift so that we might worship and serve and glorify Him. He gave us this gift of speaking to enjoy fellowship vertically with Him and fellowship horizontally with other humans made in His image, and then to articulate our praise to God. The very first time Adam speaks, he speaks in obedience to the divine command. Do you remember when the Lord created Adam, he said, now subdue the earth and have dominion over everything. And so what does Adam do? He then begins to speak. He named all the animals. He is speaking out loud. He is exercising his dominion over the animal kingdom by naming them. A very clear sign of his dominion, his, his lordship, little l, his lordship over the creation. And so he speaks, he names the animals. And then Adam speaks again. And the next time he speaks, he speaks as he gratefully receives his wife Eve from the hand of God. The same God that made him from the dust fashioned her skillfully, the Bible says, from a bone taken from his side. And in Genesis 2, Adam uses his tongue to express his thanksgiving to God, his his love to God, his love to his wife, his love and commitment to her, all in obedience, all in praise, all in thanksgiving to the Creator. You see how the tongue is supposed to work? The most fundamental, the most noble use of the tongue is to praise God. The highest function of human speech is to sing the glories of God for all of his blessings. The psalmist 
primarily David, makes this so clear. Many of you will recognize these psalms, the 35th Psalm. David says, my tongue, my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. Again, David says in Psalm 51, that prayer of repentance, he says, Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. The anonymous 71st Psalm, my mouth, says the psalmist, is filled with your praise and your glory all day long. And finally, David again in the 109th Psalm, with my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord. In the midst of many I will praise him. That's the glory of human speech. That's the purpose for human speech. That's why we were given the Wonderful treasure, this ability to speak after God himself, patterned after God himself. It is to be used to worship and to serve and to glorify him. We are most blessed with our tongues. But things changed, didn't they? All did not remain well after creation. Very quickly, there was an act of, tre- act of treason committed against the Lord by Adam and Eve. They, they ate of the forbidden fruit, and they fell from their original righteousness, and they were expelled from that garden temple by God himself. And from that cataclysmic moment on, even to this very day, the gift of human speech was corrupted and grossly disfigured along with every fiber of man's being. Every faculty, every function now stained by human sin and guilt. Now, now the gift of speech would be used in diabolical ways to express man's autonomy from God, his selfish plans, and his purposes. This is so clear as the narrative of creation rolls on. When Adam and Eve are confronted by God following their sins, they speak, but not like they did before. Now they utter twisted words that are meant to cast the blame upon each other, even upon God. And things get worse from there, don't they? Horribly illustrated, this is, in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain killing his brother Abel. Cain, now, the son of Adam, uses his words deceptively to lure his brother out in the field, his brother whom he is violently jealous of. He lures his brother out into the field, and he rises up and kills him, buries his body, and he goes his way. And then God confronts Cain like he had Adam and Eve. And how does Cain use his tongue? He lies to God's face. The Lord said to Cain, Genesis 4, 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And the word coming from this corrupted heart is, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And now, all men are liars. All people everywhere, including everyone here, we use our tongues in ways that displease and dishonor the Lord. That's what we do now naturally. 
And without being trivial or silly, every parent knows that truth because your own children have cursed your face. Maybe it was in a very infantile way. No! Why? Or they've lied to you. And you didn't teach them to do that. They lie. They use their tongues naturally now in rebellion against God. That's what we do. Because the organ of speech, that gift of God, has been so corrupted along with every other faculty, our minds, our wills, our emotions, our senses, our bodies, our sexuality, no longer under the control of the Creator. We're all using it autonomously, independently, selfishly, for purposes opposed to God's will. Speaking of the book of Genesis, there's another example of this. We don't really have time to to go deep, but remember Genesis 11? Remember that great construction project called the Tower of Babel? In those days, there was one language. And the men of that time said, you know, we're tired of playing second fiddle to Yahweh. We are going to build a tower to heaven. We don't need him. We're going to build a tower to heaven and make, quote, a name for ourselves. And that's what they're saying as they build the Tower of Babel. So what does the Lord do? He comes down and he judges their speech. He brings judgment on their tongues. And now they're not speaking the same language. Now they cannot understand each other. Now the construction project stops and they go their various ways. Judgment upon the tongues of men. The tongues of men representing their idolatry. It's a vicious, horrible story. But it's the human story. Now you can begin to see why why James would speak so strongly to us. Words Words really matter. The point that James will make is that the bridled tongue is one of those essential marks of real Christianity. Now, there are some reasons for that. There are some reasons why James would lay that test out there. And I want to give you three as we travel through this text. The first is the one we've already suggested, that perhaps the greatest evidence of our fallenness is our tongues. When you think about original sin, what sins do you think of? We typically think of those sins that get all the headlines. We think of the the murder. We think of Cain and Abel. We might think of theft. You might think the wars prove that we're fallen. You might think there's other gross immoralities that we see at work in the world. Pornography, greed, various addictions. You might say, there's the evidence, there's the evidence that that, that humanity has fallen, that we need a Savior. But when you read the Bible, there's, there's something unexpected that confronts you, and it has everything to do with your speech. There are places in the Word of God that would appeal to the corruption of our speech as the greatest evidence of our sinful nature, the greatest evidence of our depravity, of our need for grace. In other words, let me put it this way. If you want proof of the depravity of the human heart, just listen to what we say. Listen 
to how we say what we say. Biblical scholars have observed that there's hardly a sin more pervasively exposed and condemned than the sin of polluted speech. That's remarkable. You might expect some other sins to get all the attention, but in the Bible, it's the tongue that gets the attention. The misuse of the tongue in the Bible, quoting another scholar, the misuse of the tongue in the Bible is presented as the, the primary evidence that we are opposed to God. There's something different about sins of the tongue. There's something primary, there's something fundamental about sins of the tongue. The Word of God would strongly suggest that sins of speech in a particular way, separate us from God and excite His holy and just anger. Again, thinking of the Psalms, David makes this connection. In the fifth Psalm, David is describing people who are estranged from God. Now, today, if we did that, we might say they they strap suicide bombs on themselves or they shoot up theaters or they sell drugs, or they're involved in human trafficking. All of that true. But David says, if you want to know the unrighteous man, let me describe him. James says, there's no truth in his mouth. There's no truth in his mouth. There is destruction in his inmost self. Their throat, he says, is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Now, there's an unrighteous man. And again, in Psalm 10, the psalmist will define those who are hostile to God. Again, we might fill in the blank with other sins, but but the psalmist says the the hostile person who is opposed to God is the one whose mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression, and under his tongue is mischief and iniquity. You may not strap bombs on your back, but you do speak evil from your heart. And perhaps in the eyes of God, there's no difference. In the 140th Psalm, David very explicitly speaks of those who are opposed to God. This will come up later. Hang on. He says, they make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Words are important, and the way we say them are important. And then I think of Isaiah. You probably anticipated that we would appeal to the illustration of Isaiah. Isaiah, a prophet of God. Isaiah, a holy man. Isaiah, the Sunday school teacher. Isaiah, the preacher. Isaiah, the missionary, the saint. And as he sees the vision of God in Isaiah 6, as he's called by God to be a prophet, he he sees God's holiness, and he immediately falls on his face and says, Lord, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And then there's the Apostle Paul in his gospel tour de force, the book of Romans. And in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is depicting for us what it is to be lost. And he says, there is none righteous, not even one. 
There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then remember these words, their throats are open graves. He begins to quote David. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice to seek poison. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Now, now you know why James is saying, if you want to spot a real Christian, listen to what he or she says. Listen to the way they talk. Listen to what they say. Once again, we remember Jesus. And in Matthew 12, Jesus said these things. I tell you that everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word. Every empty word they've spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So even Jesus, our gentle Lord and Savior, makes the misuse of the tongue the very insignia of our fallenness and our need for mercy, the irrefutable evidence that we are estranged from God. Before the news gets any better, it gets worse. Look at the text in front of you, James 3, 6. Now, next Lord's Day, we're going to dig into this passage. We won't do that today, but look at this one verse, James 3, 6. He speaks very graphically. He uses illustrations. He uses analogies or metaphors. He is trying to communicate to us the power, and in this case, the destructive power of the tongue. But notice what he says. The tongue is a fire. We'll get to that next Lord's Day. The tongue is a fire. And then note the next words, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. What James is claiming remarkably here is that our tongues, the misuse of our tongues, stands for the whole wicked world. One commentator suggests that what James means to say here is that all of the evil which the Bible associates with the world that is estranged from God finds its focus and its expression in the tongue. What evil has ever been perpetrated that did not start with our tongues or the thoughts of words that we would speak? The tongue is the very focal point of all that is unrighteous. The tongue, as one man says, is the enemy agent loyal to the kingdom of darkness in opposition to the kingdom of God. The human tongue by itself is a complete world of evil. This is what James is saying. And now we're beginning to see why James would say, look, if you want to talk about real Christianity, It is a talk about talk. What were the worst words ever spoken in human history? The most diabolical. There's a place in human history where the misuse of the tongue reaches a horrific climax. 
I don't know what you would think about, but I immediately thought about this. Pontius Pilate has the now arrested Jesus next to him facing the crowd. He says, I find no fault in him, but what do you want me to do with him? And then Luke records in Luke chapter 23, the crowd kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And I would suggest to you that the awful power and depravity of the human tongue reached its maximum point of wickedness in that moment when the world said, crucify the Son of God. You see how far we've come from Adam naming the animals in obedience praising the Lord for the gift of his wife, even breaking out in blessed poetry. And now the human voice looks into the eyes of the Son of God and says, damn him, crucify him. Now this is why James says, oh yeah, what you say really matters to God. But very, very quickly, there are two other reasons why the tongue is a mark of true Christianity. Remember, the first is because it's the evidence of our fallenness. But there are two other reasons, and these will happen very fast. And the second one is this. Our speech is the most glorious signal of the power of God. If it's true that the corruption of our tongues is perhaps the greatest proof that we're fallen and estranged from God, it is also the very place where we discover the most glorious evidence of the power and mercy of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to make a biblical connection that if you haven't seen is going to light up your Christmas tree. The Tower of Babel. Mankind with one voice in rebellion against God, determined to be idolatrous. God judging their tongues. No one can understand anyone anymore. And the construction project of that great idol now is unfinished. But then Jesus comes and he lives in perfect holiness for 33 years. And he dies the perfect atoning death for our sins. And on the third day, he is raised again bodily from the grave. And he appears to brethren and hostile witnesses even. And then he gathers his disciples, the 11 remaining, and he says, wait here until after I'm gone, and I will send the Spirit to you. And then what happens? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Jesus is now ascended. The Spirit has descended. And the Spirit falls as Peter preaches there in Jerusalem. The Spirit falls upon that crowd. And they see what appear to be tongues of fire appearing. And what happens? All of these people who've gathered in Jerusalem who speak different languages, different dialects, bearing the marks of Babel's failure, 
They are brought together, and this miracle occurs. Everyone hears Peter preaching in their own language. And God is reversing Babel at Pentecost. All of the languages hear Peter preach clearly in their own dialect, and now he brings together what he had destroyed and blown apart through his just judgments, and now the speech of humanity is used once again to sing the praises of God and to bring humanity together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now the human tongue the redeemed tongue is under the control of Christ. That's why your tongue matters. It's your greatest weakness, but it's the greatest evidence that Jesus has changed you and is changing. And then the final reason associated with the first two is that our tongues offer the clearest proof to the world that Christ is Lord. Now you're going to get a bit discouraged next Lord's Day, at least for a little bit, when we read those words again where James says, without any equivocation, he says, no human being can tame the tongue. And that's true. We're going to see that next Lord's Day. But Jesus does. Jesus can. What is untamable to me and to you is quite tameable to him. And when he saves us, one of the first things he starts to do is he gets control of our tongue because he will be Lord of every part of us. Our minds, our decisions, our choices and our will, our emotions, our bodies, and especially our tongues. The Lord Jesus takes what is thoroughly untamable, that wild stallion of a tongue that we all have, and by his power, he conquers the unconquerable. He is Lord over that which will have no Lord. And his kingship will be revealed by the fact that Jesus now controls our tongues. The author of Hebrews offers a prayer that we should end on. May God give us, may God, may the Spirit give us, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's why your tongue matters. May God help us to evidence that we belong to him by the fact that Christ is Lord even of our words. Shall we pray together?